in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, beginning at verse 17. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Let's pray. Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Do you remember when you could find a phone booth? And when a call cost a dime? Well, back in 1977, and by golly, it doesn't feel like that long ago, there was an experiment done with dimes and phone booths. The phone booth experiment was done by placing a dime on purpose by the researcher on the little shelf in the phone book. And the person would go in, use the phone, and how many of you used to go in there and check to see if there were change in there? Come on. We all did. Well, they'd see that dime lying there and either use it or slip it into their pocket. Normal thing to do. Well, the researcher would be waiting, and as they came out, they would say, I'm sorry, I think I left my dime in there. Did you see it? Well, any number of times with that approach, they would say, mm, no, I don't see your dime. But, but, if they touched them gently on the arm, almost 100% of the time the dime was returned. Another experiment was done when going up to a stranger and asking if they could borrow a dime. 
In this one, 65% of the time, if the request was made with that gentle touch, the dime was given without question. All of us know of the studies of children that were institutionalized who might have been fed but never were held and nurtured with loving touch and how that lack of contact would not only thwart their growth but their mental development as well. Touching. Touching creates a significant connection. It produces a level of openness, whether we are aware of it or not, and even vulnerability. It begins to offer trust, and it's powerful and life-changing. No wonder the scriptures said that people came to him to be healed of their diseases and those with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd were trying to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. I can imagine being present with Jesus and being just as hungry to touch him and to find out what that would do in my life. Now this is pretty wonderful and warm until we hit the next piece of our scripture in which Jesus drops a bombshell. Lightning goes off, as it were, when he looks at these wonderful people and begins the Sermon on the Plain. Now, this is not the same as Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. This is level ground, and it's a level playing field. And Jesus comes up and says something that's never been said before. He says... Blessed are the poor and the hungry. Now, you've heard that. And it's no surprise in our day and age that Jesus would have said such a thing. But back then, it was earth-shaking. The Old Testament and many places had made it clear that the rich and the full were the blessed ones. If you happen to be sick, well, by golly, you did something or your parents did. At least you deserved it. If bad things were happening, God must be punishing you for something. If you had riches of camel and cattle that brought pleasure and fullness to your life, you must be doing things right. Consciously or unconsciously, we today are still tempted to believe that way. That if you've got enough to make it, if you're rich and you're full, you must be terribly blessed with enough money to afford a mortgage, pay the bills, and have a vacation or two a year. The rich are assumed smarter, at least intellectually quicker, 
more adapt to land on their feet. To Luke, though, the kings are compared to the rest of the world. They are the ones in earshot of Jesus, being told that the world just turned upside down. Because now, the poor are the ones blessed, and the hungry are the ones who are rich. Woe to the rich, woe to the full stomach. How odd, how unusual, how striking this must have been in their experience. It's so disturbing that when Matthew writes his version of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, he softens them up quite a bit. He goes, blessed are the hungry and the thirsty for righteousness. They will be filled. We can be that kind of righteous and hungry Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who are poor in spirit. Not just poor, but poor in spirit. We can be poor in spirit too, and we can see the kingdom of God. This spiritualization helps us to take it easier in there and not find such a contrast in the scriptures We all know the wisdom being humble and poor in spirit. We all know the wisdom that we Christians are to be hungry and thirsty for the right relationships and the righteousness of God. There's wisdom in that. People who are genuinely humble are on the right track. People who are passionate for the right things are in the right direction. We can nod with Matthew in agreement and comfort. But Luke doesn't say that. He says, blessed are the poor and the hungry. Woe to those who are rich and full. And it doesn't quite make sense. His words are such a reversal that we've got to wrestle with it for a moment this morning. What does it mean? Basically, Luke is trying to illustrate that our lives reveal our priorities. Those who are about massing material goods have to focus on those things to get them. That's just reality. Making our faith the priority doesn't keep us from the fact that we still have to make a living keep a roof over our family's head, feed them, educate our children, and prepare for some kind of retirement that doesn't make us a burden to our children. We acknowledge that there are different priorities at different times in our lives. So when Luke raises the question of being poor versus preserving life, It's not so clear how you do that. Well, first of all, Luke wants us to realize that this version of the Beatitudes are not hazy ideals. He issues a fundamental challenge. 
Where do we set our happiness? Is it wholly on earthly things or is it on spiritual ones? Is it on the short-term contentment or on the things that endure into eternity? What is clear is that Luke differentiates or marks the difference between the poor and the rich by understanding it's the focus of their attention. The poor are going to inherit God's kingdom because they set their minds and their sights on God. There's nothing to distract them. They only have hope in the future. The rich, on the other hand, are concerned with maintaining and enjoying what they already had. So their focus was on the present and its gratification. Simply put, for Luke, the rich were marked by their concern for money and what it could buy, and because the poor had nothing, they were freed from that temptation and marked by spiritual concern. To make his point, Luke identifies three activities. The difference between material possessions, since the poor had none, they would be satisfied with God, and the rich would be filled, but ultimately not satisfied. Entertainment so necessary to surviving the struggle of being poor would find their contentment by being without it. On the other hand, the rich would crave not only the entertainment, but what was coming after that. And what about reputation? In the name of the kingdom, the poor would be persecuted. But Luke says they're going to be honored like the prophets of old. If you're concerned about your present reputation, he indicates the rich will be quickly forgotten. For Luke, then, the difference between rich and poor is so much more than about money or stuff. The truly poor were those who were willing to sacrifice material need, daily entertainment, and reputation because it was about God. The poor were poor by choice, not by circumstance. So the truly rich were those who craved wealth and the comforts that it could buy, even at the detriment of others. So for Luke, even the poor had a huge sense of community because their focus was on the well-being of those whom they treasured in God's name. The rich, in Luke's eyes, focused only upon themselves and the consequences of actions on the self by ignoring others. So the Sermon on the Plain is all about touching truth. Truth that could either create and sustain a life and reflect God's kingdom or that ignored it altogether. 
No doubt Jesus understood that the people had gathered around him to listen to his teaching and to seek their healing and blessing. Excuse me. He did cure people and liberate them from the evil spirits of the day. But from the outset, Jesus was determined that his disciples would understand this is kingdom work that we're about. And his physical touch in the community was only a sign, only a sign of what was more important. No one seeking Jesus should run away with the idea that the kingdom was a stroll in the park, some kind of glamorous option, or the latest, greatest thing to follow. It was costly. Our scriptures say Jesus fixed his eyes. Now this small detail of Jesus fixing his eyes on his disciples tells us a great deal. He's making a point, a significant one, and wants them to be have no doubt of his seriousness. He's, he's doing one of these, saying, read my beak, get this. The point being that Jesus' listeners would not have been lost on the community. They were going to be risking everything in following Jesus because that's the life-giving, radical choice. Its consequences would be often rejection. They could be misunderstood. It might even produce unhappiness even today. We as Christians may find this life-giving choice of following Christ to become a disciple of Jesus to have with it some unpleasant struggles. They and we need to hear Jesus' words to his disciples that this is not only to be expected, but it's because it's not the whole story. Yes, there's going to be difficulty, but there always has been. And we need to struggle with poor and hungry and sorrowful folks in order to meet their needs, in order to touch the kingdom. Those who ignore it will be the ones left out. Had a a wonderful little conversation this week with person who stopped into the office and said as a teacher she loved Valentine's Day because school still let you celebrate it. You know, they hadn't taken it away like Christmas and, and those kinds of things. And I said, well, I tell you what, we just won't let the school know that it's been centered around a saint. Don't tell them it's religious. Valentine was a Catholic priest in the early third century, a priest in Rome, and he was known for helping the uh, Christians of the day who were being persecuted by Claudius II. He would marry soldiers to their wives when soldiers at that time were not supposed to be married. 
So he was imprisoned, and, and Claudius kind of liked old Valentine. He didn't want to really put him into prison. He found him charming and, and delightful until he tried to convert him. And then he was toast. Legend has it that Valentine cured the blindness of the daughter of the judge who sentenced him. And when he wrote her a note, he signed it, Your Valentine. It was in 269 that he was beaten and stoned and ultimately beheaded for his love of the gospel. Make no mistake, this sweet little holiday is based in the love of one of Christ who was willing to offer his life to serve others. G.K. Chesterton says it this way, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. It's good to remember that the world of Jesus' day the people of Jesus' day were the people of Israel. It isn't as much about their economics as it is about their struggle as new Christians to figure out what it means to be a faithful people. Luke and the early Christian movement took these promises of hope and applied it to their lives so they could withstand spreading the gospel and sharing the love of Christ. They were the people in the margins and they were the ones being persecuted and hated for espousing Jesus' message, trying to live it out. They did stand in the tradition of the prophets who were despised. They were also poor in so many ways. Being oppressed is dispiriting. They were exploited and lost at times and hopeless in spirit. If we took to heart their definition of poverty, many of us would fit that category today. We may have enough, but are we not still struggling to be faithful? Are we not often dispirited trying to figure out how to keep up with the taxes, feeling exploited at work, hopeless in spirit? It's to these Jesus announces the promise of reversal when God's reign is established. Can you find your joy in Christ and keep moving forward? They're real people, having been touched by Jesus, who are a part of this reversal, who establish God's reign right here today. And I think we're invited to do the same. Don't know if you've heard of Dr. Paul Farmer. He is a physician at Boston uh, and head of the infectious disease program at Harvard Medical School. He spends two months a year in Boston and working at Brigham and Williams, I said that again, Brigham and Women's Hospital. 
But the rest of the year he spends in Haiti serving those who are considered disposable in society. Why? Because his faith compels him to be a part of the poverty that would change the world. Tracy Kidder, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, has written about him and says this, it's not as though what he's doing is somehow not human or somehow superhuman. He is intensely human, real. When you hang out with Paul, you begin to think that altruism is normal. And the other stuff we tend to think of as part of human nature, things like greed, selfishness, not telling the truth, you begin around him to know that those are abnormal, even though they're practiced. It's just another way of seeing the world tilt, the bomb going off, the lightning bolt of Jesus' information. I would say it this way. Dr. Farmer is intensely aware of the touch of Jesus on his life and intensely aware of resulting power of the ability to touch other people's lives in literal ways, making the kingdom of God visible in one of the most broken places of the world. So how do we do it? There are not many of us that could spend two months at a job and another 10 in some other country helping other folks. That doesn't mean our call is somehow smaller. But our scripture this morning does request that we start with a basic premise. That when you and I engage others, our touch... Our voice, our hand, our eye, the sound of our tone, our touch is never neutral. It has impact of one kind or another. Are we aware enough of God's ability to work through us in any situation? I had a great opportunity to read a little article this week about uh, Tim Howard, if you're a major league soccer player follower, you might recognize that name. He says in an article, I was 23-year-old kid from New Jersey, from an early age, had come with Tourette's syndrome, a brain disorder that can trigger speech and facial tics, vocal outbursts, and obsessive-compulsive behavior. They took him on as a goalie at that age. But what he says is, when I was 11, I developed a new symptom. The worst one yet, he says. I had to touch people before I could talk to them. When I say had to, that's exactly what he meant. I had to literally touch them before the words would form in my mouth. I imagine we could all acknowledge our struggle 
to be faithful and committed to the higher something within our lives? What if we imagined that before we encountered anyone or any situation that we were touching their lives and that formed our words and allowed us to speak with the invitation to do so out of the love of Christ? What if we were aware that Jesus touching us is touching others and that magic is where transformation takes place? Are we not called to love God, to love others, to serve the world anytime we do that? We are a part of those who are changing and spreading the gospel, who are causing the world to tilt in ways that recognize the kingdom is still very much real and very much at hand. Thanks be to God. Amen.